fact, you may have seen mentioned this past week that humans are still cheaper than AI in the vast majority of jobs. This is the conclusion of MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. AI just isn't cost-effective yet. What a relief for many workers, except that the study found that 23% of jobs in areas from teaching to real estate work, not just in factories, nearly a quarter of jobs could already be effectively supplanted by artificial intelligence to save money, despite the fact that AI-assisted visual recognition is expensive to install and operate. Retail, transportation, warehousing and healthcare are up there in in this respect. 212 years ago, working men were outraged by the arrival in factories of wooden, water-powered looms. The Luddites were English textile workers who were dead set against the use of certain types of cost-saving machinery, and they would sometimes destroy the machines in nighttime raids. Ned Ludd was the nom de plume used in threatening letters sent to mill owners and to public servants, hence the name Luddites. Eventually, protesters began to be shot, hanged, or sent out to Australia as felons. The government needed 12,000 troops in the end to put down the rebellion. And we tend to think of Luddites as simply being opposed to progress, but they were more opposed to dreadful inequality and not being able to share in the profits of the Industrial Revolution. Two centuries later... Will history repeat itself? Brian Merchant has written Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech. Brian is the technology columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the author of a book that became a bestseller, actually, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. He's the founder of Gizmodo's Automaton Project, examining AI and the future of work, and his writings also appeared in The New York Times and The Atlantic. Brian, very good to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I notice little things and big things. And if I had a better brain, I'd notice more big things. But one little thing before we get into your book is that, you know, when you watch clips online, you know, as we all do, we YouTube everywhere, there's stuff we want to watch. They used to be preceded by ads you could click out of. And now often you have to sit through them. I've never decided about the ethics of an ad blocker versus no ad blocker. My question, um, Brian, is whether all the privacy invasions and other indignities we suffer online now are necessary for the internet to serve us well, or whether this is just greed, merchandising and multiplying and magnifying. I can't quite work that out. I do not think that it is necessary for a robust and uh, well-rounded internet to be larded with such ad tech and with such sort of invasive uh, surveillance uh, regimes that are instituted by a lot of the platforms. I think basically the long and short of it is uh, we could absolutely have an internet that that is more enjoyable, more fun, more useful, more functional uh, without all of that stuff. But we would have to think pretty hard about um, how we would want to change the, the model and the incentive structure for uh, the companies that currently operate the internet as we uh, uh, as we know it. So, 
you know, <laughs> that's a that's a whole conversation that we had, and it's one that's beginning in earnest now. I'm glad that it's beginning in earnest uh, because, yeah, a lot of people are really fed up with, you know, with Twitter, with Google, with Facebook, and rightfully so. Speaking of being fed up, thank you for that answer. Speaking of being fed up, we forget that the Luddites had a long list of social, societal, and monetary grievances that went far beyond a dislike of textile machines, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the machinery itself was uh, probably the least of their concerns. There's an immense amount of historical scholarship in your book that I won't have time to discuss in depth. But George Mallor is your hero from those days, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about George and also his sad end? So basically, George Mellor is a cropper, which is a cloth finisher or a, a cloth worker whose job is to take sort of a finished piece of cloth and, and smooth it out and make it sort of so it so it so it's uh, it, it, it can be sold and enjoyed, uh, you know, on the public market. So his job's really important. He mans these huge sort of 50 pound shears they look like these enormous sort of scissors it's really skilled difficult work um and they run it over the cloth to to smooth it out um and it takes years and years of apprenticeship to to learn to do the trade correctly and and it just so happens that george in uh 1811 when most of the the book takes place and from 1811 to 1813 he has kind of just come onto the scene as a working cloth finisher just in time for uh, machinery to uh, enter this uh, enter the scene at the same time uh, sort of thrust there by uh, industrialists who use a, a machine called the shearing frame and and the gig mill a pair of machines that can essentially do his job although not as well uh, in in mechanized fashion and there's this interminable war that's entering its um, second or almost third decade with Napoleon and he was a veteran of that war and he just kind of feels like he's been given a raw deal and in many ways he really has. George Mellor uh, you know eagerly kind of joins the cause and forms a, a Luddite cell. But there's savage pushback into um, Luddism and he's actually put to death in the end isn't he? Yeah, so he leads his local troop of Luddites on a string of initially quite successful raids. Um, they attack uh, the the machinery, and they they only attack the machinery that's uh, uh, you know that is automating work or degrading conditions or is sort of churning out inferior products and ruining the reputation of their trade. They do not target all of the machinery that many Luddites uh, were quite familiar with and quite happy with you know they were all technicians themselves they were not anti-technology they were anti-exploitation um so george leads them on all these raids and and they see some success for a while but then they take on this really you know big factory by one of the biggest factory owners in town um and over a hundred luddites gather to assault this factory but the the owner of the factory um William Cartwright is prepared and he turns the Luddites away in a halo of gunfire. A number of Luddites are killed um, and it sends George into a rage and he, um, you know, makes the decision to um, assassinate another one of the mill bosses in town uh, in sort of in, in cold blood. And that's a turning point for the whole Luddite movement. It's when a lot of 
you know, popular opinion begins to sour and, you know, they're getting uh, pushed back by the military, uh, you know, in other ways. Um, and yeah, so, so George is uh, eventually found, you know, for a long time, the Luddites are still relatively popular all through the, the following months. And, you know, he's protected by, uh, by sort of this, this code in the, in the community and among the Luddites not to turn evidence for a long time, but eventually one of his, um sort of co-conspirators another one of the men who was there that day turns him in and he is he is tried and hung um you know he was actually guilty of of, of murder it you know it looks like by the historical evidence um but <clears throat> in coming weeks dozens and dozens more luddites whose only crime was to was to break the machines that were being used to to take their jobs and to sort of destroy their working conditions were also put to death um just for sort of destroying the equipment that's one of the great virtues of your book i think brian is telling us exactly who the luddites were uh, as opposed to our hazy notions of history brian merchant blood and the machine the origins of the rebellion against big tech there are two crucial differences, you would think, between our days and those days. One is the relative levels of comfort and security in the lives of most people, although inequality we know is rising. And the other is, as Yuval Harari points out, and I think I mentioned this a bit, it's the tech bosses that own all the algorithms now. I mean, the Luddite uprisings failed then and would presumably fail now. But... When you say little has changed since that time, what do you mean? What I mean is that little has changed in the way that um, technologies are developed and deployed is very anti-democratic, right? It's built and organized by those who have access to sort of the enormous amount of resources that are necessary to do so to start an Amazon or to 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 launch an Uber. You need lots and lots of venture capital cash these days. Um, and if you can get it, then you have basically secured the right and the ability to build a platform or a mode of work that could potentially affect millions and millions of people. Um, so it was a similar sort of arrangement where those first tech titans, as I call them, beginning perhaps with Richard Arkwright, who patented the water frame and, and is considered um, sort of the father of the factory system uh, because he used that water frame, which helped to sort of make more efficient the production of, of yarn. Um, and, and he organized them into sort of these giant, you know, enormous monolithic buildings that we now associate with, um, with the factory. And he used his technologies uh, to maximize productivity to um, essentially uh, engender labor exploitation by using lots of children at the time. You know, we don't use children today as, you know, in, in as large numbers anyways. We've seen an alarming resurgence of child labor in the United States. It's yeah. yet another way that we connect the eras. Um, but it is the use of a technology, uh, a well-financed, well-heeled uh, technology in the name of profits um, to erode social norms, standards, regulations. And that is what looks astonishingly similar then and now. Those early tech titans, they used their technologies uh, chiefly to uh, argue that the old rules didn't apply, 
that they could trample over sort of laws that were on the books then and now that would, you know, regulate who can join a trade or how much training somebody needs or whether or not, uh, you know, a certain uh, standard of quality has to be met. Um, and in, in our day, you know, certain protections um, are attendant to industries like uh, like the taxi industry, for example. And when Uber showed up and said, well, we're a software platform, we're not a we're not a we're not a. Uh, uh, a, a taxi company. We're 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 a we're a tech company, so we don't have to play by the rules of uh, your um, stodgy old municipal code, um, and and we don't have to pay attention to the to the uh, the regulations of the taxi sector. We can do as we please. Well, we've seen what what's happened as a result um, with a lot of. Uh, Uber drivers have seen their wages decrease uh, year after year and their standard of living going down on one side. And then the taxi drivers who saw their work kind of shifted away um, due to this sort of algorithmic gamesmanship have also seen their livelihoods eroded away, too. Um, so that's it's quite similar to, to to what happened in both eras. And, you know, I'm not saying that that we can compare the precise conditions on the ground. Obviously, in the early Industrial Revolution, uh, the working conditions were absolutely horrendous. I mean, if you worked in a factory, you could be very well likely injured or killed by the you know machinery that had almost no regulations um, governing it at the time. And today, things are things are, are are much better, although not all the way better. We still have people collapsing and dying of heat exhaustion after being overworked at Amazon. We still have Uber drivers sleeping in their cars because they've been evicted from their apartments because they can't afford to pay rent. So, you know, things are grim in a different way. And it's that that I'm hoping that these parallels can help us see and then work to correct. I suppose the thing is, in this second machine age, as it's called, that the the rest of us are happy with our new overlords uh, so long as we can get cheap Ubers into work. And you would say, I think, that it's a variation on the old saying, you know, first they came for the taxi drivers, then they came for the copywriters and everybody who goes to a single place of work each day and isn't in charge. And it's just that a lot of us don't realize what's in store yet, yeah? Yeah, and perhaps that is why we're seeing a more thunderous sort of uh, refusal of a lot of these technologies or uh, resistance to them. You know, we saw what happened with social media and there was a lot of things that I think people would change in the way that that was rolled out in such an unregulated, undemocratic, again, way. It was Mark Zuckerberg at the helm of the ship and he unleashed a world of harms in addition to some, you know, very, very good stuff too. Uh, but I think there's a sense now that it's not off limits, that people can push back. People can do sort of uh, the spiritual descendant of Luddism, if not actually taking up a hammer. They can push back. Hollywood, you can see the virtue, and we feel the pain of not being able to watch a lot of new movies and TV shows, streaming shows. But with a lot of the jobs in other industries, we can't see the effect, and we mightn't feel the sympathy, and the rebellion might be more difficult. It might be. Um, and it also might not be. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example is uh, it, Las Vegas. And I just happened to have visited uh, Las Vegas over the summer. And if you go to, to Vegas now versus uh, five or 10 years ago, it's pretty striking. You go to a, a, a roulette table and you might be uh, face to face with a CGI avatar instead of somebody who's 
um, you know, running the table and kind of making the small talk and making it fun. To me, at least, the experience is apples to oranges. It was it was completely sort of alienating and weird. And it's the same at a lot of the card tables, a lot of the games. They are basically trying to automate a lot of those jobs. These are skilled workers who who really are forming in in my opinion anyways sort of the beating heart of the place i can look at an app and play uh you know a, a, a gambling game on my phone i can yes. play poker on my computer i don't want to go to vegas and stare at another screen <laughs> um and these are skilled workers so they are fighting back too and these are really you know blue collar workers uh who you know are maybe less visible until you come face to face with it and you realize you know this is coming for 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 everybody and i you know i think that they have very good reason to to fight and it's both on the consumer's behalf and their own uh and 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 you know i think that there's we're going to see a lot more of that as the years go on yeah that's a striking example you know since i've been discussing this general topic on the radio over the years until quite recent times brian the riposte has always been, oh, yes, jobs will go, but more jobs will be created. Education will solve this. Do you believe that, actually? I mean, we see literacy and numeracy skills falling rather than going the other way. It's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, just like we're talking about, a lot of the jobs that are now sort of subject to greater degrees of automation are educated jobs as well, jobs that require education and college degrees or are most commonly associated with them. I don't think that more education is really the answer because I think this erosion is um, happening from not quite the top, but, you know, uh, just under the top on down. Um, and it's it's not going to be it's not going to be solved by retraining programs uh, for a long time. You know, people pointed to the service sector booming as a uh, bright side vis-a-vis uh, -vis the decline of the manufacturing sector. Well, now the service sector is under fire, too. I think we really need to think about, um, you know, policy level solutions about how we're going to address uh, more and more sort of modern day mechanization and, and AI being used uh, to displace or uh, disrupt the workplace in more and more situations. Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. Brian Merchant is with us. Yes, but in your book, a study by Goldman Sachs estimates that 300 million jobs are being taken over by generative AI. And it's interesting because there's a shortage of qualified people in so many areas and in many jobs, you know, the world is at your feet. I mean, you might not earn a fortune, but, you know, you're in demand. And I suppose this is the question. The danger is that, or might be, that as workers agitate more and more, which I'm not arguing against by any means, but the more revolt there may be, the faster the desire for automation will be, but on the part of the bosses, if you like. Yeah, but I always go back to the fact that if a company can automate, if they if if they if they think that they can make more money using a machine to get a job done or using a, a software platform uh, to get a job done, they're going to do it anyways. They are going, they're absolutely going to make that call if they think it's going to be a net benefit to their operations. If they decide that it's worth uh, the short-term pain of, of automating a job um, so that they can reduce labor costs in the long run, they're just going to make that call. For the second part, uh, the reason that a lot of companies don't make that call is that it's 
almost always far more complex and expensive to automate than they are uh, than than seems immediately uh, obvious. There are so many, you still need people to maintain those machines. You need people to sort of service them, to understand them, to help uh, customers learn how to use machines. You have to reckon with the fact that a lot of times they break down or they don't work as advertised. So it is a risk. It's always a risk to auto- to automate. There's no guarantees that it's going to work, basically. You know, quoting again, and this certainly applies to AI, you know, when tech development is top down and workers get no say in how automation and algorithms impact their daily lives. It, it, but isn't it utopian to wish for the alternative? You can see how bogged down society would get if every advance was explained and haggled over. I mean, don't we rely on the oligarchies in charge of us to a great extent now to be beneficent? And may, and maybe you never get to be in an oligarchy if you are, and you never did in the past either. There is absolutely room for a better option. And, you know, if the price of uh, a more democratic approach, which, again, you know, I'm not advocating for any specific policy. There's any number of things we could do. We could more heavily regulate the venture capital sector so that they don't um, have sort of the ability to just pour willy-nilly hundreds of millions to billions of dollars into any company that they choose without um, being taxed appropriately or so forth. We could do that. It's anything from a piecemeal approach to uh to you to you know a more comprehensive policy uh policy approach and it may seem utopian to say well everybody should have a say in how the technology that affects their lives is uh developed and deployed but i think that's what we should at least strive towards because the opposite having it sort of shoved down our throats and then having to constantly play a rear guard action against the excesses and and detriments to that uh, model uh, has has proved to have an enormous array of of ill side effects. You know, one point substantially in your favour, I think, as regards a dark and greedy future if we don't do something. Uh, I know this isn't directly related to your book, but, but despite decades of scorn and sometimes outrage, there persists a culture of CEOs, you know, and people employed in government agencies and departments all over the world being paid phenomenally high salaries. And sometimes when they leave, um, having occasionally publicly failed at their jobs, they pocket huge exit checks. And I saw the Economic Policy Institute saying that CEOs are now paid 400 times um, I'm sure some of the famous ones bring the average up, but even so, 399 times what the average worker underneath them earns. And 50 years ago, it was only 18 times. We haven't managed to stop that with its you know, assumption that you just can't get good enough people to run a company you know, for a, only a couple of hundred times what workers earn. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't stopped that. So we may not stop the rest. That's, I guess, one inference. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great uh, that's a great point. And meanwhile, the you know wage gains uh, that have that that the middle class has seen in, in the same time period uh, ha- have been minimal, and that's a pretty good sign. If there ever was one that 
the benefits of technology are not accruing to society at large or to the average person. Um, it's just like 200 years ago, the vast majority of those benefits are accruing to the people who own, manage, and decide how everybody else should use or be subjected to technology. You know, many mill owners back then, getting back to your book, actually submitted to Luddite demands for better pay and working conditions here. And that that is happening today as well. I mean, employers aren't all thieves and robbers, and nor are the entrepreneurs. And tons of people have pointed out that it'll be impossible to create societies that pay universal benefits to the excluded people because there won't be enough of a tax take to keep the electricity on and the hospitals open and the roads sealed. So in this future, unless we intercede... Uh, as you've mentioned, in this future, it looks pretty grim for a whole lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the fear. Uh, and, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, in the early beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, it it absolutely was grim. Um, and again, I don't think that things will necessarily materially be, be comparable to to sort of the strife and the difficulties that the working classes faced then but we're seeing similar uh economic trend lines uh, which is another reason that i you know wrote this book and and tried to compare these two periods and the role that that, that accelerating technology has to play um in those imbalances so it absolutely does stand to get a quite quite grim if we do not intercede. Um, fortunately, uh, especially right now and all over the world, there is uh, a more interest than there has been, at least in my lifetime, in trying to you know amend some of those trajectories so they're not quite so onerous. The labor movement here in the states is um, revitalized in ways that it hasn't been for decades. There is hope, at least. I mean, it is worrying that AI has become the sort of buzz trend of of Silicon Valley uh, right now. And the biggest sort of use case that they have is selling it as uh, enterprise tier uh, technology platforms to, to, to businesses that are essentially hoping to automate. It is completely uh, within the realm of possibility that things continue to get grim, but the hope is that all these people who are kind of standing up right now, recognizing the harms, uh, feeling animated about uh, protecting their jobs um, and, and organizing, doing things like that, um, you know, they're making real noise. So it's, you know, it's the future's wide open. But it's not as if the robber barons of today uh, can completely hide from the world behind their high walls. I mean, we do have social media and we have investigative mainstream media as well. And that's still strong. So that presumably uh, engenders hope. Yeah, I do. I do think so. I think that, um, you know, there are some of our modern day Robert Barons. And like you said, I think that was a great point you made earlier. You know, it's this is not most most of the uh, founders and the leaders of, of tech firms, you know, are not bloodthirsty robber barons, just like they were not back in the day 200 years ago. The problem is, is that is that if you want to compete, you know, in e-commerce, then you have to compete or submit to Amazon. And Amazon can get pretty bloodthirsty, you know, at least, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking. 
Um, so, you know, and a lot of these guys are online. Elon Musk is the most famous example. And, you know, he used to be a pretty uh, haloed uh, hero here in the States because he was working to, you know, fight climate change and uh, reinvigorate space travel um, since he has bought Twitter and, uh, you know, engaged himself into controversy after controversy that that has changed. Yeah, I don't know exactly how meaningfully anybody's been able to sort of change the the, the course of these companies behavior um, through Twitter, for example. Yeah. But uh, it's certainly a factor. By the way, is Amazon's Jeff Bezos determined it was cheaper to keep emergency technicians on hand to treat heat stroke rather than air condition some of his warehouses. Really? That's not just rumour? <laughs> I don't think he does that anymore, but no, that was a famous case. He hired um, uh, privately contracted uh, amb- ambulances, basically, to uh, idle in the parking lots so he could treat people for, for heat stroke when they were working at some of his uh, his facilities in, in, in the Midwest. Um, and th- there was some pretty well documented cases um you i mean there's other cases where you have uh, a, an employee having a heart attack and dying on the floor and nobody stops to check on him for 20 minutes because everybody's so worried about meeting their productivity goals and because surveillance of each individual worker is so extreme so you do have some pretty nasty stuff going on in uh, both at the Amazon warehouses and in the uh, in, in the delivery drivers that that, you know, that do the last mile deliveries, the flex drivers, they call them, many of whom feel so strapped that they, they can't miss a single minute that they instead of pulling over and finding somewhere to use the restroom, they just keep bottles that they that they urinate in uh, because they don't want to get docked by the algorithm that that, that surveils their uh, their work days. So, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty, pretty extreme stuff. And yet the counterpoint to that is the rise of HR power in companies, making sure that health and safety and niceness and mental comfort and so on are emphasized. That is the strange dichotomy. Well, I mean, I don't know how uh, well HR works or how well the industry um, is regarded uh, in New Zealand. Here, you know, (laughs) HR is largely considered by many uh, to be a a mostly a pro-corporate edifice. The best HR reps will do their jobs and will be uh, will be advocates for workers. Uh, The worst of them won't. And I've worked for a lot of companies that uh, have had severely lacking HR departments to the point where it would, you know, might well sour me from, uh, you know, approaching them with a serious issue in the future. Come and work in New Zealand. Uh, Look, um, just a couple more things. Because uh, you've been generous with your time, you make an interesting point that workers in the on-demand app industry don't work with one another necessarily. So solidarity can't easily build between them all in this kind of mutating form of the gig economy. And yet, uh, many workers now don't want to go to work anymore. Although more and more will have to. I mean, Airbnb lets you work wherever you want. Are you saying that even as we have seemingly found a new degree of freedom and independence, we're kind of also at the same time robbing ourselves of the ability to unionize and unite, Brian? 
You know, I that it, that's a great point, um, and that is very much a, a, a double-edged sword um, because I do think that that's true. I think that it's harder to build solidarity when you're not in person um, every day. And one thing that made the Luddite movement so powerful and so uh, feared and respected uh, and cheered for as long as it was uh, back in the day while it was succeeding um, was that these uh these workers knew each other in intensely well they had worked together they had grown up together they had been in towns together they trusted each other um so it is it is harder to build that solidarity um through through digital platforms but it was a tactic of of lyft uh, and uber in, in in particular to just kind of keep you know they used to have these these central places where drivers could could meet up and be trained and they've even they further uh distributed the process uh the longer it's gone on you know both for cost reasons but also because they recognize that it is uh advantageous to them to keep um workers atomized and 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 working and acting alone um it the but the biggest thing that i would say is that you have to give workers agency or choice. And that's the biggest thing people are protesting about going back to work. I think a lot of people would be happy having like a hybrid schedule or going in a few days a week uh, or, you know, being able to make their own schedule. I like to go into the office and see my colleagues. Um, but it's having the choice taken from them, I think, that is another thing that actually sort of calls back to you know, the Luddites. The Luddites uh, did not like to, quote, stand at their command. That was one of the big grievances they had about being forced into the factories. They didn't want to go sit under an overseer and be told when they could stand up, when they could take a break, when they could go home, um, when previously they had all kinds of agency and, and you know, a, a real pride in the way that they could do their work on their own terms. So today, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing people have had a taste of that autonomy and that agency and wanting to structure their own days, believing that they're the best, uh, uh, they know best about how to organize or govern govern their work days. Um, and that they don't want to go back to having someone, you know, tell them what to do. They don't want to go back to uh, standing at their command. Uh, so I do think that there is uh, uh, you know, a balance to be, to be struck there. And I, you know, I personally don't think it's inappropriate, uh, to, uh, you know, have some, you know, shared workspaces and to, to have some, uh, office time. And it is a great chance to build solidarity and to get to know your coworkers. Brian Merchant's been with us, Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech. Just one last question, if you don't mind. I mean, one salient point about the age we are in today is that people just can't keep up. I don't mean older people who are probably a lot savvier than was anticipated when everyone used to talk about digital natives, but it's patently obvious that a large chunk of humanity, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, can't be bothered to or is unable to be a part of this age. And isn't that different? I mean, looms weren't that hard to understand. Coding is. All the workplace applications are, especially with increased red tape and reportage. Is it hyperbole to say that a great swathe of humanity will simply be left by the side of the road? Because the, a phrase in your book is the war on normal people. Can I get your comment on that before we go? Sure. Yeah, that's actually the title of uh, Andrew Yang's book, uh, The War on Normal People. And there will be a number of folks who are left behind or sort of... Uh, 
deeply uh, <laughs> unpreferenced, I guess, in, 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 in terms of career advancement and that kind of thing. Um, you know, again, I, I don't worry as much about the machine apocalypse happening tomorrow or even in five years. Uh, I, I do worry about these systems uh, exacerbating inequality. Yeah, as you say, uh, making precarious workers more precarious and advantaging a select few over others. Um, that's typically what automation technologies have done in the past. And I don't think there's any reason to think it'll be different this time. And in fact, it could be worse. I'm going to remember that word unpreferenced. That's a great euphemism. <laughs> um, love, lovely to talk to you um, the topic isn't so lovely of course and the prospects may not be either but we'll wait and see but um, it's all in your book and thank you very much for join, being able to join us Brian oh, it's my pleasure it's uh, fun to talk through it all with you